0: Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan.
1: What's up?
0: Hey, how you doing?
1: I'm great. I had a wonderful day. How about you?
0: It was pretty cool. I was at work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mostly worked around the house today, but I feel very accomplished. Yeah. Everything's golden.
0: Yes, clearing out that room where we may try to podcast in the future. We're
1: trying to set up a studio in the house, so worked a little bit (laughs) to get that space cleared out. And it's beautiful. It's fall very chilly this morning when I took our daughter to school. It was like 40-something degrees outside.
0: It was pretty cold.
1: She was like, oh my God, I'm frozen. It was very cold.
0: I came back inside and got a jacket at 4 in the morning.
1: Yeah, but then (laughs) by the afternoon it was gorgeous. You had that golden kind of sunlight coming in.
0: Oh, that's those beautiful fall days. Fall days in the mountains.
1: We had a nice walk this evening.
0: We did, but it was brisk.
1: Through our neighborhood, it was a little brisk, but it felt great.
0: Yeah, that's a good welcome weather.
1: The only thing I don't like about this time of year is it starts getting dark so much earlier. Well, wait till they
0: fuck up the clock. I know. They should just leave that be.
1: Yeah, I feel like daylight saving time is The time, time of that helping that is gone. Needs to go by the wayside.
0: The only good thing left out of it is it has some school kids not, you know, in the light instead of dark maybe before they get to school.
1: Well, yeah, that makes sense.
0: But other than that. There's no reason for but it. But
1: I'm loving the fall weather so far. Loving everything about it. We have some nice coffee brewed. You put a little pumpkin spice creamer in there for me.
0: Gotta be seasonal.
1: It is so seasonal. I love it. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it was uh, prepared by Stud Bucks.
1: So this weekend we're going to oh, do some no. fun things. We're going to take the kids maybe to the corn maze.
0: Yeah. That My sounds... son
1: loves fall activities. He loves going to like a pumpkin patch, hay rides corn maze, all that. Like, fall is his favorite time of year. We're going to have to hit up the corn maze, I think.
0: Yeah, we'll be all up in it this weekend.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we should tell our listeners that we may have... We're, we're Since it's October, it's spooky season. We're trying to load you guys up with some great podcast material so you have something to listen to all month. But we are going out of town next week. We're going to take a vacation.
0: Yes, we are.
1: So we'll be gone for a few days. There may be like a little lull.
0: We may miss our usual Sunday Release late day, evening yeah. Sunday sub, sub, you know, submission, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I'm dumb to out there. Okay, <laughs> cut all that out.
1: I will not. Yeah. So we may be a little bit late getting out our episode next week. Typically we drop on Sunday. We may have one. We may have one. We're not sure, but we're going to be on vacation. We're going to visit some uh, spooky places, a couple of old cemeteries, do some ghost tours. Uh, We're going to go down to like Hilton Head, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia area. We may post some fun things on Mountain Murders.
0: Yes, and if there are any listeners out there, uh, tell us a good place to eat.
1: Yeah, if you live in or around Hilton Head or Savannah, Georgia, hit us up. Tell us a good spot where we might have a drink or grab a bite to eat. What do you recommend?
0: We'd have a drink with them if they'd
1: have us. It's true. I'm actually thinking that we may have to find a case that happened in Savannah
0: oh, I guarantee to kind you. kind of
1: play up on the fact that we're on vacation there. What do you think?
0: Uh, that could be the one that we drop while we're in Savannah.
1: We may have to do that. Hello. Well, this is a great case that we're going to talk about now. This brand new case that we're going to do. It's been covered by some podcasters out it's there. A crime, it's a big one. It's a big one. But not as much as you'd think. Right. I think I've only maybe heard one podcast that when I scrolled through that they had covered the story. But growing up here in Western North Carolina, when this happened, was huge.
0: Well, and I was, it was
1: constant news. Yeah, it was cycled. a big
0: deal, and yeah. I remember that vividly. And but also, I think even nationally, for the type of crime that they that it is, this is one of the big ones. So this is a little out, uh, not mountain murders, because we like to do the obscure and. All that stuff you've never heard of. Hopefully, this is one of
1: the bigger cases.
0: But yeah, but uh, it's still one we feel like we should talk about.
1: You may be familiar with it. Maybe you don't know all of the details. So we're here to fill in some of those spaces for you. And you ready to get started over there? Yeah. (laughs) Dylan's over there, like doing some weird Chris Farley movie. No,
0: yeah, I'm doing like stupid,
1: stupid. (laughs) Don't know what he's. He gets really fidgety sometimes when we try to do this. I feel like I have to duct tape him in. His seat.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's manic energy, honey. I'm sorry.
1: Okay, you ready to get started? (laughs) Yeah,
0: let's dive into this well known big case.
1: On October 25th, 1994, 23 year old Susan Smith showed up at a stranger's house frantic. She said a black man had carjacked her 1990 Mazda protege that she'd been driving. Then drove away with her two young sons still inside the vehicle.
0: Every person's nightmare, right?
1: Terrifying. Yeah,
0: I mean, how horrible does that sound?
1: A Carjacking, someone kidnaps your children. They take
0: off in the car, it all happens fast, your kids are in the damn car, and you see it last you see, it's speeding away.
1: And someone carjacking you, they've got a weapon, they've got a gun.
0: Typically violent.
1: What are they going to do with these two kids? Right. Just terrifying. For nine days, she made pleas on national TV, begging for the safe return of the two little boys. This was a case in the 1990s that captured the attention of everyone. Susan Smith eventually is going to become what Casey Anthony is to the 2000s.
0: She sure is. Susan
1: Smith was the Casey Anthony of the 1990s. The
0: most hated mother in America
1: totally most hated woman and honestly even today you say the name susan smith and there are a lot of people who will shake their head and be like that woman's a damn bitch like people just do not like her
0: well that's horrible and we're
1: about to get into why if you're not familiar with the case i'm gonna not guarantee it but i'm gonna say probably 80 percent of you are gonna feel the same way by the end of the story right so from the moment she reported her kids missing, a statewide search was implemented and eventually triggered a nationwide search. I mean, this story was huge.
0: It was v- what today people say is viral. I mean, it went boom.
1: Because this is one of those stories, and we're not saying that this is the first time a case like this has happened, but I think this was the first big case when we had the mega media.
0: Right. Entertainment crime. The the
1: internet wasn't quite popular like it is today, but you had all of these news programs. You had CNN. You had the 24 hour news cycle, which was kind of a newer type of thing. You had all these crime shows, hard copy.
0: And that stuff was taking off.
1: Oh, yeah. That was when true crime really started like popping.
0: Yep. 2020. I mean, you had to really, I think about as being younger, you had to either, you know, get a book. Or, you know, catch maybe a movie if you're lucky. Or wait to see those couple of, you know, series that was along the lines of your true crime that you love.
1: Exactly. You had to wait on it. We graduated from after school specials. Yeah. To hard copy one day.
0: Yes. (laughs) From the Hardy Boys.
1: Well, the description that Susan Smith had given of this black man, which later was used to draw one of those, like, police composite sketches, it offered really generic details.
0: Wow. That's... So
1: right off the bat, as she's describing this person, it, it was just weird. Like, she just, it was so generic. She didn't really have great detail. There was nothing memorable about this person. Yep. So really, I mean, they didn't have a lot to go by.
0: And that's a thing. When when you give cops a description like that, I think there's a term for it now, Right. The bushy-haired stranger or something like that? Shaggy-haired something? Um, something. The
1: one-armed man? I have no idea.
0: Yeah, but (laughs) I I think it's a term for just this very, like you're describing, very generic. And and even in a traumatic event, it's like a flashbulb moment, right? Like everybody knows where they were in 9-11 when they shot JFK, blah, blah, blah. You remember minute details, like the song playing on the radio and things like that. So you've been through this flashbulb, traumatic moment, and you just got a basic-ass description. And this guy's all up in your face.
1: Volunteers were searching fields, woods in the nearby area. Volunteers were out postering the towns. People were out on horseback, riding up and down rural roads.
0: They were all over everywhere.
1: It was a huge effort. I mean, like I said, this case was probably one of the biggest things to ever hit South Carolina. I'd say. And people were coming from miles away to help search for these two little boys. It was heartbreaking. Roadblocks were set up. Police were interviewing as many people as possible. Susan appeared on television multiple times, but skeptics began questioning Smith's story. Doubts about Smith's story surfaced pretty quickly into the investigation. About two days into this investigation, Smith was given a lie detector test, which she failed. Cracks in her story had detectives believing she was involved in her son's disappearances. Maybe possible murders. Police suspected Susan knew the whereabouts of her sons, but they had hope that they would find the little boys alive. Like maybe she had just taken them somewhere. Or
0: dumped them off with somebody. Yeah. Or some crazy, yeah.
1: But without coming out and saying, hey, we think she's guilty, within the department, people were talking.
0: Right, but it had become such a big deal. They were super careful about... Because, you know, at, at, for, at first, everybody was like, oh, this poor mother. And, like, she was embraced by the entire nation, really, and especially the area. And then they're this other... So but they're investigators, and they're looking at the cold, hard facts.
1: Yeah, as soon as two days in, they yeah. were really suspecting her. That's why they asked if she would be willing to take a lie detector test. And
0: you fail it, which is junk chem- is junk science. But I think when you get a lot of, you know, okay, you failed that, you know, this and that, your details are kind of, you know, missing, and, you know, just all these little things add together, then they're going to take a look at the mother.
1: We'll get into more of her marriage to David Smith, the boy's father, here in a few moments. But Smith and her husband David both go in to take the lie detector test. She fails, he passes it with flying colors.
0: And there you again, go.
1: junk science not super reliable no but there you go <laughs> it can it
0: can be like kind of an indicator to kind of look in another direction you know yeah
1: well as you said people were really feeling you know some type of way about this poor mother having this incredibly traumatic experience coupled with her children are missing yep she has no idea where they are and people really just, this was just something that touched a lot of people. Yes. Multiple leads, tips poured into law enforcement. By the third day, a car matching Susan's vehicle, which was that 1990 Mazda Protégé, was kind of a burgundy color, was seen in North Carolina. However, you know, when law enforcement, I guess, pulls over this car, starts questioning, looking at paperwork, they realize it's not Susan's car and continue the search. It was at that time that some water searchers came to the area and began looking in lakes and ponds, including the John D. Long Lake. Now, the first water search didn't find anything near the lake shore. They were only searching about a 30-foot distance from the shore. Like, oh, if someone submerged this car, it probably wouldn't go any further than that. First search, nothing, not finding anything. One of the biggest clues of the case was Smith's story. When cops start checking out what she's told them happened, it's just not coming together. The story about the location of the carjacking was quickly disproven. Susan Smith claimed the carjacking happened at an intersection where a traffic light was red. The light turns red. She has to come to a stop. She says she stopped. There were no other vehicles present. When she was approached by the assailant who had a gun, demanded he he take the vehicle, he get in the car with her, make her drive off, whatever. Well, it was determined that the light would not have turned red unless there had been other cars present at that intersection.
0: Oh, smart lights. Yes. Ha
1: <laughs> Smart lights, stupid lie, right? <laughs> yeah, and also,
0: so you're in your car, right? You're setting it in in drive, just setting a stoplight on this empty-ass road, and here's somebody just approaching you with a gun. You know, or somebody approaching you quickly and looking scary.
1: Don't you just take off? You would think.
0: Put your, Get your head down and hope for the best and go.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go, because if they're gonna shoot me... They're going to have to shoot me leaving.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I never understood that. But as we go on, there'll be a lot of stuff I don't understand. Probably a lot of stuff you don't understand either. Smith had been separated from her on-again, off-again husband, David. She had been dating a wealthy guy named Tom Finlay, whose family owned the company where Susan was employed as a secretary. Susan was smitten with Finlay. He was not interested in starting a family, nor picking up in raising Smith's two sons. He wasn't ready for that instant family. He was seeing the affair as more casual, sexual, but not really much more than that. Susan was devastated.
0: Well, like most people... To find this out. View affairs, I think, when they're doing them, right? It's just fling or this thing on the side. Right. I mean, I don't know how often it turns into a real thing, but... He's just getting his.
1: Well, she's really into this guy. He's, he's you know, good looking. He's like the bachelor around town. He has money, comes from a good family, has a good job. He's kind of like everything that Susan wants in a husband. And we'll get into this more, but kind of like her parents' ideal guy. Okay. So she's really latched on, but he's just not really feeling it. It was fun while it lasted. We could be friends. He gives her that old song and dance. Ends up breaking up with her.
0: Well, if you didn't have two kids.
1: And Susan, like I said, absolutely devastated by this breakup. She spent a lot of time obsessing over the relationship. On the day of the murders, and we're going to get into the murders here in a minute, Smith picked her sons up from daycare. Then she returned back to the factory where she worked in hopes of persuading Finlay to rekindle the romance. But she was rebuffed. Okay. Later, she calls a friend who works at a local bar to find out if Finlay had stopped in for a drink and if he'd asked about her. Or mentioned her. Now she's got a
0: little baby stalking going on.
1: So her friend's like, yeah, he came in, he's here, but no, he hasn't mentioned you at all. Saddened by this news that you know, Finlay had not been talking about her, wasn't kind of feeling discussing sad their breakup and... with yeah. people.
0: Yeah, because she didn't matter to him. Probably, maybe
1: she's pretty upset. She loads the kids up in the car to go for a drive. She thought maybe going for a drive might clear her head. She'd feel a little bit better. And she says she had to do some shopping at Walmart. However, later, employees at Walmart will say they do not remember anyone fitting Susan's description in the store at any time with two little boys.
0: Yeah, you think somebody would notice. You know, I know a lot of people go through Walmart, but, you know, somebody notices one and two kids, right?
1: Well, as she leaves her home, pulls out of the driveway with the two little boys strapped in their car seats, it's the last time anybody's going to see these kids alive. By November 3rd, 1994, Basically folding under pressure, Smith confessed to murdering her two sons, Michael Daniel Smith, who was born in 1991, and Alexander Tyler, who was born in 1993.
0: I don't know how you do it.
1: I don't know. We're going to actually play a segment from one of Susan's interviews on TV that she you know, she's on this news program pleading for her boys. Talking about what it's been like this nine days without them. Oh God! The same day is when she folds under the pressure. Wow! So one minute she's crying those what are they called, crocodile? Crocodile tears. tears. And the next minute, not so much.
0: Oh, and I want. I we're about to find out why they call crocodile tears. Okay. I would like to say to whoever has my children that they
1: please. I mean, please bring them home. Susan and David Smith appeared on the ninth day on, as I mentioned, three major networks to do interviews. Right. Susan said she was outraged, and it hurts people, or it hurts that people speculate how she's involved in this disappearance. I can't believe people would say these mean things about me.
0: Reflecting then, it back on her. and
1: caring a, about her missing children. It's about
0: her, you know, how she feels. Yeah. You have to be some kind of... I don't know if monsters are the right word, but just a cold, uncaring person to be able to plead uh, so many people's emotions, you know, to plead to the nation and have all this support coming in, probably money, letters, people saying they're praying for you, and just not even care that you're lying through your teeth.
1: So she sits down, conducts several interviews, and then a few hours later, she is taken to a church nearby for further questioning, because the police are kind of applying pressure every day, bringing her back in for an interview, calling her back in, hey, we need you to write this down. Hey, can you come back and tell us this thing again? Yep. I mean, they're just keeping on. So when they take her to this church to conduct another interview, that's when she breaks down, admits everything. She begged a detective for his gun during the interview. She confessed she had submerged the boys in her car off a boat ramp. 120 feet from the shore, another water search is conducted. And 120 feet from the shore, the Mazda protégé is discovered.
0: Wow. It floated way out there.
1: The sad. This is so sad. Divers that were working the scene, the fellow who found the car, said that when he saw the vehicle, the first thing he saw was a tiny hand in the window.
0: Oh, my God. And that
1: he knew the children were inside the car. Wow. Yeah. Susan was allowed to write out a confession, and they wanted her to write this confession so she couldn't go back and recant. Right. Because every day her story had changed just a hair, a little something here, a little something there. So they had her write it down because they knew they could trip her up.
0: Yeah, because that's why they've been bringing her in over and over and over. Her story's changing, and these you know small details getting changed around her. You can't keep up with lies when you are ly- you keep lying in line to train professionals.
1: Susan tells detectives she was suicidal and living in a veil of tears.
0: Oh, poor girl.
1: She was planning to kill herself and her children. She drove around about an hour in the car with the kids, then took the kids down to the lake. She parked on a boat ramp. She says she is, you know, staring at the water. She's thinking about driving into it. But she stops herself, she lifts a parking brake, and then she sits there for a few moments, upset, all the feelings. And then she lets it down, and just as the car is about to hit the water, she jumps out and watches her two little boys disappear into the dark water.
0: And that takes a minute for the car to sink. It ain't like it just goes straight down.
1: That is true. Yeah, it did take some time.
0: Yeah, it's probably four. she gonna, claims at that three point, to six minutes
1: she couldn't get in, she, she, she just couldn't get the boys out of the car. Right.
0: Yeah, do you, okay, do you believe this shit? That she did all that contemplating and stuff? I don't think she did. I think she had a plan and she went next. I could be totally wrong. I could be an asshole for saying it. I think she knew what she was going to do. Maybe not.
1: Yeah, I think we should get into this after we finish the case. Okay. But yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think in some of these cases, you can feel um, some sort of you know uh, empathy, right. compassion, sympathy for these um, mothers.
0: not at agree times, with them, but see how they ended but up there. Not
1: yeah. Susan Smith. And like I said, we'll get into that here in a few minutes. The divers who find the car, they get the vehicle removed from the lake with witnesses stating that you could actually see the little boys in the back seat of the car strapped into their car seats. As they pull the vehicle up. Wow. And many rescuers, detectives, law enforcement, emergency workers, the guy with the tow truck. People were like, this is something that you would never forget seeing.
0: Right. And those pe- all those people see stuff every day.
1: This is just an unforgettable moment. I'm sure. Overnight, the support for Susan Smith had completely gone away. <laughs> People in Union, South Carolina, were essentially forming a lynch mob, threatening her, cussing her as she made her way, you know, to the courtroom. Um, they have video of Susan Smith basically being arrested and driving, you know, the police are driving her away. and She's in the backseat of a car and people are standing along the sidewalks. Calling her every name in the book. Yeah,
0: if they had rotten fruit, they and vegetables, they'd be throwing it at her.
1: And there was a huge backlash in the black community. They were deeply upset because Smith had lied and attempted to make this crime what they felt like was a racial issue. Well, Immediately, she's claiming it was a black man. Yeah, and it was, it's that whole myth of the scary black the scar- man. And, who and did the,
0: it. Yes, back then in the what early nineties, they were very big on running with the scary black man got pumped down your into your brain all day every day on TV. It's true. And then they still do a version of it. But back then that that was the best thing. Cops, you know, any crime show, any news report. And that's why they ran it went caught wildfire when this first came out.
1: Was it the Michael Moore film, was it Bowling for Columbine? Where he actually talks about and he actually goes, I think, to LA and speaks with like a, a media professor right. who talks about how there absolutely was this myth of the scary black man right. and, and this hysteria and all you heard about was like all these gangs and shootings and they're standing on like the corner of like Compton Boulevard yeah. and like and he's like you know all you hear is how you're going to get shot and killed here and then he's like we've been standing here talking for like an hour and nothing's no happened. One, yeah, and, right. right. Exactly. So that definitely was a thing. But people were outraged, you know? Bl- it's like, here you've got this white woman crying over her two little white kids. Of course, everyone's feeling so sorry for her. Right. Concerned about these little boys. And then you're basically vilifying a black man black- who didn't do this and right. who doesn't even exist.
0: Right. And that generic and who's ass... And kind
1: of looking a little bit like Dave Chappelle well, doing yeah. that whole crackhead. Yeah. You know, where he has a little toboggan on. He's like a little crackhead guy, a little beanie. That, um, the drawing, the sketch, kind of reminds me of Dave Chappelle, like, as the, you know, the crackhead.
0: Oh, Tyrone? Is that his name? Yeah, he's like, you got some more of them Mountain Murders podcasts.
1: I love Tyrone.
0: No, but, um, she, <laughs> and she gave a generic facial description. I mean, this was like a lot, she described a lot of black men. And the, you know, communities of color were literally, the cops bit down pretty hard in that area. They were harassed outright. I mean, they were just cops crawling all over their neighborhoods. I mean, that's what was happening. And all because this, yeah, this woman killed her kids this alive. lot. community
1: is essentially being terrorized. Yes. Being profiled, being stopped. M- yes. Roadblocks.
0: Young men being stopped left and right and, you know, harassed over and asked a questions. Fake story. Asked where they're going, where they're coming to, you know, from. All this because of a lying woman who killed her own kids. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a that was a big element of that story as well that I r- remember.
1: Well, let's get into a little bit of Susan's background. Susan Lee Vaughn was born September 26, 1971 to Harry and Linda Vaughn. Uh, she was the only daughter to this couple. Her mother, Linda, was a stay-at-home mom. Her father was a firefighter. They lived in Union, South Carolina, and of course, if I forgot to mention it in the beginning of this story. Uh, This is where the case takes place, is in Union, South Carolina. So Susan born, bred there, basically lived there her whole life. Linda had a son, Michael, then Susan, then another son named Scott. The thing is, when Harry and Linda met, Linda was already pregnant with this child, Michael. So biologically, he was not Harry's son. Okay. Pretty quickly after Michael is born, Harry and Linda are married, they quickly have Susan. Now, the father, Harry, would fly into rages where he had threatened suicide. He threatened to kill Linda. He was an alcoholic. He, uh, from what I'm reading and researching, believed his wife was like always cheating on him.
0: Oh, well, that's healthy. He had some
1: serious trust issues. And, you know, she had been pregnant with another man's baby when he married her. Just a lot going on in this household.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a, I might not say toxic, but an unhealthy relationship.
1: Yeah, he'd come home from work. It was always, who you've been sleeping with today? Also, he's very insecure. Screaming, yelling, threatening to kill her. And, of course, doing all of this in front of the kids. Some domestic violence, really dysfunctional household. Susan Smith did not have a stable childhood, to say the least. Michael, her brother, would try to kill himself when Susan was only three years old. He had a lot of mental health issues.
0: Well, yeah, and a household like that's not going to help it.
1: He would spend time kind of in and out of mental institutions, just kind of back and forth between the house and these places, because he just was like really struggling with depression, some sort of um, schizoid sort of behaviors.
0: Yeah, that's a lot.
1: Well, the parents divorce eventually. Only about five weeks after the divorce, Harry commits suicide. Wow. Susan was only six years old when this happened. And despite the fact that she had had this very dysfunctional childhood, she actually was pretty close with her father. Like, she'd been somewhat of a daddy's girl. Really looked up to her father. So even though home life hadn't been great... And her father was definitely not Blue Ribbon Winner.
0: Well, no, but dysfunctional... She had
1: a really close relationship with him. And she loved him. He was her dad.
0: Dysfunctional families make family connections, too. You know, it's just sometimes in weird ways, but yeah.
1: And when he shot himself, he didn't die immediately. He shot himself, called 911, was picked up by an ambulance, taken to the hospital. And he didn't actually die until he was at the hospital.
0: That sounds horrible. I mean, from a... Yeah, that just sounds brutal.
1: Well, with this being said, the very erratic home life, the unstable situation with her parents, then her father's suicide, her brother being hospitalized...
0: Yeah, that's a lot.
1: She was a really depressed kid. She also tried committing suicide by the age of 13, and she took a bunch of pills. Now, Linda would marry just weeks after... The divorce.
0: So before the suicide?
1: Um, About around the time of the suicide. She's going to get remarried to a very wealthy man named Bev Russell. Beverly Russell. They called him Bev. He owned an appliance store. And he was also a South Carolina Republican executive. Like with a state. Okay. Kind of Republican party.
0: Oh, so he's, a, he's somebody.
1: He was like a pillar of the community. Active in a lot of those Small town civic organizations well known in town, kind of like a a big wheel in a small town
0: old Beverly <laughs> a guy named Beverly
1: he had been pretty much the opposite of Susan's dad. Mom really felt like she had married up well, yeah, when she married Bev, and Susan may have felt that way too. They moved into a bigger house in a much nicer part of town. She had a really tough time, though she was living a much more privileged life. Money wasn't tight. She was spoiled. Pretty much had anything she wanted. She had a really odd relationship with her stepdad. Susan desperately, like, wanted his attention. She was someone seemingly throughout her life who was always kind of looking for that father figure. Needed some approval from a man. Yeah. And maybe not so much in, like, a romantic way, but in that, like, she was looking for a dad.
0: Well, yeah, just some validation. Like She you, had some
1: daddy like, issues. Yeah. I mean, we all do, but she definitely did. But the relationship, like, like I said, was really odd. It was almost like she was competing with her mother at times for his attention. Okay. And later, it would come out that he had been molesting her.
0: Oh, shit. You got a heap molestation on top of all that other stuff she's been through.
1: Well, at some point, Susan filed a complaint against Bev. Her mom, I think, you know, maybe splits up with him for a little bit, but they end up getting back together. In 1988, when she's in high school, she tells a guidance counselor that she's being molested, and there was like a second set of accusations levied against her stepdad. No charges were brought against him. There was some sort of like out-of-court type of settlement or mediation that took place.
0: This guy's friends with the prosecutors, the judges, the police. Well, like I said, he's, like
1: big, he's, he's kind of a big deal he's in their town. He's in
0: the, uh, in the, uh, the old boy network.
1: Republican Party. Yeah. He knows a lot of politicians. He can
0: easily bury something like that.
1: Well, in school, Susan was a good student. She was a volunteer, worked as a, um, a candy striper.
0: Yeah, I, I heard that the other day again. What is that? It's sort of... Oh, you go volunteer at the hospital, right? Yeah, and
1: and they do different things. They take...
0: Take the towels and washcloths. Flowers to people and and
1: sit with them and kind of of visit. And they might do something like... I think they used to do things like take your blood pressure, but now they don't really do stuff like that anymore.
0: Yeah, anything, any hour you volunteer is a very awesome thing.
1: She worked with Special Olympics. She was in other clubs at school, was somewhat popular, pretty, made good grades, was well-liked by people, so just seemed like uh, the world was her oyster.
0: Well, maybe she was getting past all her childhood drama. Uh, not drama, I'm sorry. Traumas. In
1: 1988, she's still in high school. She gets a job at the Winn-Dixie grocery store. Good old Winn-Dixie. Remember the Winn-Dixie? Yeah. We don't yeah. have a Winn-Dixie anymore. <laughs> yeah,
0: they're all gone. There's still a few, but not here.
1: She started dating a married man while working at the Winn-Dixie store.
0: That's always a good idea.
1: She's still in high school, still a teenager, young teenager. She gets pregnant and has an abortion. She ends up working her way up, though, through the ranks at the store, starting out as a cashier and getting promoted all the way to being like a bookkeeper. So kind of like working in a back office. Yeah. Not on the floor, making a little more money, plus getting a job skill.
0: Hey, you can move
1: up in a grocery store. I mean, bookkeeping is a good skill to have. Yeah. She's also seeing another guy who works at the store. When she gets dumped by the married guy, and and get this, the married guy dumps her because she's seeing this other kid that's closer to her age. He's jealous and dumps her, but he's married. What a creep. What the fuck? Married guys,
0: oh, married people affairs, they're such asses. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's kind of gross. It is
0: pretty gross.
1: So she gets done by the married guy. She tries to overdose again on pills.
0: Yeah, well, she Tries to
1: commit suicide. She's
0: heaping all that, uh, an abortion, which that's not easy, I'm sure. All this other stuff just getting heaped on top of this pile of...
1: And she's still young.
0: Yeah, she's still young. I
1: mean, that's serious adult decisions to be making when you're 16, 17 years old. An
0: affair with a married man, all that crazy feelings that get tied up in a relationship like that.
1: Well, it just goes to show that she it's, it seems like she's always trying to find that father figure. In the wrong places. She's got those daddy issues.
0: Looking for love. She's
1: often seeking out these married men who are older.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Uh, you yeah, know, that's I mean, what it's happens. It's kind of going to become a bit of a pattern with her. Right after all of this happens, After the suicide attempt, when she gets back to work at Winn-Dixie, she meets a guy, another employee there, David Smith, and David had come from a troubled childhood as well. His parents had a fairly tumultuous marriage. From what I understand, his mother was like super strict and religious, and his dad wasn't, and so that was always kind of a point of contention in the house. And then David really didn't like his mother's, I mean, she was kind of a fanatic.
0: Yeah, that would that well, just that being that different with your core values, we've talked about it before, is it's a strain in itself.
1: So, by the summer of 1990, Susan and David were casually dating. Susan's gonna find out she's pregnant in 1991. She had planned to go to college, she was a bit disappointed, surprised. This is a little bit of a bump in the road. She had plans.
0: Well, that's what happens when you kiss.
1: Well, her parents were not happy that she was pregnant either. I mean, David didn't have money. He didn't come from money. He's a kid. He's working at a grocery store. They were not pleased at all. But Susan decides that they should get married, even though the relationship was really casual. It was, again, one of those things where David thought they were just sort of casually dating, and Susan thinks it's something more. A pattern. So she really kind of, you know, oh, insists we have to get married and have this baby. They get married, they move in with David's grandmother. Now, to add insult to injury, as I said, David had come from a troubled childhood, had similarly dysfunctional family. His father tries to commit suicide, and Susan finds him.
0: What the hell? Yeah. Come on, you can't make that shit up.
1: Just lots of trauma. On repeat with this woman. Tag Susan and David—they have a rocky marriage. They're young. They don't have much money. It's hard. It's hard when you're an adult and you have some money to be married, right? Well, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, yeah.
1: But when you're young and you don't have any money, I mean, money is like the number one thing people fight over. Well, Couples you're, fight over.
0: You're trying to adult, and adulting sucks
1: yeah right. it fucking sucks. <laughs> we was
0: talking about that earlier today. <laughs> yeah. I was like just what if, imagine if we had people to do all the little stuff for with us. With that
1: being said, if you'd like to sign up as a patron on Patreon, we'll gladly take your money. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, and we have one of those.
1: Yes, we we got a new one. So they got this rocky marriage. The issue with the money, I mean that comes up with most couples, but Susan was definitely accustomed to living a certain lifestyle. Remember she came from money. With her stepfather. Right. Had been a bit spoiled. So she's spending money buying lots of stuff.
0: Credit up to their eyeballs. Shopping.
1: Yeah. Spending yeah. money faster than she's making it. Money's going out. Bills aren't getting paid. Starts piling up. A lot of debt. She starts getting loans from her mother. And the spending caused problems with the marriage, as you can imagine. Susan's mother was described as kind of controlling David was not liking the situation because his mother-in-law is already kind of got that domineering, controlling personality. Now she's giving Susan loans and money, so she feels like she really has some right to meddle in the marriage. Right. Give them tips on how to raise their baby.
0: Yeah, you gotta listen now.
1: David, to make things a little bit more awkward and strained, becomes her boss at Winn-Dixie.
0: Susan's boss? Yeah. Shaw.
1: So he's the boss there. They would cheat on each other, reportedly. Other employees at the grocery store say it was like a Peyton place type of thing, where they are constantly sleeping around, hooking up with other people, co-workers. He's her boss. Oh yeah, they break up, they get back together. I mean, this is like a regular cycle.
0: Now sign me up to have my personal life bleed right over into my work life, so when I go to work, that shit can go right there with
1: me. I know. Imagine if you had like a little nagging me all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, pick up your shit.
0: Dylan, I'm like, why is she making me a don't?
1: Why is there stuff here? What okay. are you doing? Put yeah. things back where they go.
0: I'm like, oh, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah, lucky you. In 1992, Susan gets pregnant again. She and David reconcile, and this time they decide to buy a house.
0: That always fixes it.
1: Susan's mom and stepdad help them with a down payment. Now, during the pregnancy, there were rumors that David was cheating with another employee at the store. Susan was not happy at all during this pregnancy. It was reported she... She didn't like the way she looked. She didn't like the weight gain. She felt ugly. She's taking care of a little one.
0: She's already got a little one. Right. That's hard stuff right there.
1: Well, after Alex's birth, the couple tries to reconcile again.
0: I'll stop cheating. Because
1: they had issues during the pregnancy. He's cheating. Things aren't going well. Like I said, they are chronically breaking up, and getting back together. And you probably know those people, I know those people, and some of them I keep around like on Facebook just so I can watch the drama play out. Yeah. I mean, we know these people.
0: And once you cheat, you never get it back. It's never the same. You never get it, even if it goes on to be okay, it's never the same. Are
1: you speaking from experience? Do you have something to tell me?
0: Well, no. I'm not cheating on you. (laughs) I'm just saying that you see those couples, it's never the same, they never have the spark.
1: Three weeks after Alex is born, they split up again. So literally, they will be together for like two weeks, break up for a month, get back together for three weeks. I mean, it's just on and off. This time, David moves in with his grandmother, and Susan ends up getting a job as a bookkeeper with a different company, which is probably a smart move. Yeah, They don't need to be working together.
0: No, and that's what they needed in all this was a new little baby. That's yeah. going to make it easier.
1: Well, this is when she ends up meeting the 27-year-old, the good-looking fella, Tom Finlay, in 1994. David has rented a house near the boys. You know, he's actively trying to co-parent with Susan. He wants to be part of his kid's life. They bought a house. He's renting one basically just kind of down the street so he can pop in. He can babysit. He can look after the boys for Susan. Well, it's during this time that Tom breaks off the affair which was October seventeenth, nineteen 1994, and he does it in a letter.
0: Oh, that's kind of like getting a text.
1: It's better than a post-it note.
0: Well, at least it took him longer to write a letter, I reckon, and he had to go to the post office.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, she falls into a deep depression. She's skipping work. She's drinking. She's stalking him, calling the bar, asking her friends, have you seen him? Is he talking about me? Is he with someone else? What's he wearing? Does oh he look God. sad?
0: Yes. Is he thinking about me? Can you tell if he's thinking yeah. about me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, this This is not good.
1: She is not dealing with his rejection well at all. On October 25th, 1994, remember that's when she loads the kids up in the car, hits the road. We'll get back to that story now. It was about 9 p.m., when a woman had kind of settled into the house watching TV, dark, late at night, well, 9 p.m., she hears this noise, like, outside, kind of on the porch, so she naturally is curious what's going on, finds Susan Smith sitting on her porch crying. That's when Susan hysterically breaks into the story about this black man who carjacked her at this intersection, held her at gunpoint, made her drive, kicked her out of the car, drove off with her two babies inside. This woman, you know, she's like, oh, my gosh, got to help this poor woman. Gets her husband to call 911. They probably went, Perry, fine. Go find your gun and your bullet. They are really concerned. I mean, what would you do if someone just came knocking on your door or you heard someone outside? And this is the story they're telling you. Well, Well, in our neighborhood, we might assume they're on methamphetamine, but...
0: Well, and also coming to our house in particular, (laughs) we're going to run through some scenarios and body language and, you know, that stuff. So if they can convince us to call the police, then it's probably real.
1: (laughs) You're funny. Well, during the days that our sons are missing, Tom Finlay called to the house to basically offer a Sympathy, condolences. Yeah, he
0: might have been offering resources.
1: I'm really sorry for what's happening to you. I really hope that they find your boys, that everything is going to be okay. You know, just trying to wish her well. Concerned guy, trying to be a good friend. Plus, you know, she's employed at his parents' company.
0: He may care for her to a degree. I mean, you know, they've been having a relationship. I want to
1: be friends. He meant it. But witnesses say that during this conversation, Susan was more interested in talking about her relationship with Tom.
0: So she's just happy to have contact Not
1: with her. mentioning her kids. Just wants to talk about, can we see each other? Will you come over? Can we get together? Tom even expressed to other people how, like, disgusted he was by the conversation. He expressed to Susan on the phone that he just wasn't interested in being with her He was concerned about her kids. He was wishing her well. He really hoped everything was going to work out. Quickly gets off the phone. Never calls her again.
0: Because that's gross. And
1: then tells people what had happened. And he was like, it's really weird that she didn't seem concerned at all about her kids. During the conversation.
0: She wasn't. I'm going to say it. She wasn't concerned about her kids.
1: The trial kicked off in 1995. July 18th is when it began. The prosecution paints a picture of Susan Smith as a woman who murdered her children simply because they were obstacles in her love life. Her defense team said that Smith was a suicidal woman who had accidentally killed her children. A psychiatrist diagnosed Smith as a major depressive with a dependent personality disorder. She was sentenced to life in prison and is housed at... I'm sorry, she was housed at the Camille Griffin Graham Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. But (laughs) two correctional officers were charged with having sexual relations with her sometime in the early 2000s. So she was moved to the Leith Correctional Institution in Greenwood, South Carolina.
0: Okay, so those are a couple of geniuses there, right?
1: And I've read a few articles where they say she's not allowed to be alone with like male correctional officers.
0: Is she that manipulative
1: because she seemingly has sex with them when she's alone with them? <laughs> and there have been some reports that she's um a self like she's into self-harm and has gotten in trouble a few times for cutting herself. I believe she's tried to commit suicide a few times while she's been in prison. Didn't somebody whoop her ass? Let's hope so. I'm,
0: so, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I know I was kind of left fielded, but I believe somebody stomped her ass at some point.
1: Well, I have a hard time imagining a lot of those women who are away from their children right, are going to be real happy with them oh, What's well, no different than the rapist and the molester kid. goes exactly. with
0: the daddies over in B- big boy jail? Well,
1: you know, I think often in the Susan Smith story, we forget David Smith. The boy's father.
0: Yeah, I know. Because he was engaged. He he seemed genuine. What well, you saw of him in the press. Well, it I seemed think, der- you know,
1: he and Susan may have had a terrible marriage, but he loved his boys.
0: I think they were just young and they both had baggage and they were just young. We all we all went through our little fits of dumb things when we were young and maybe not healthy relationships, right?
1: I was perfect. <laughs> I'm just I kn-
0: I just, I you must, you must was. be
1: talking about my first marriage. But David <laughs> Smith, he's given some interviews, you know, as, as yeah. time has progressed. And right. I did see one interview with him uh, on the Dr. Oz show. And he was saying you know, every day it does get a little bit easier to deal with the grief, but that it's something you never get over. And he said the really tragic part of this grieving process was, you know, his children are murdered. He yeah. finds out his Ex, ex-wife, his wife...
0: Who he probably still cares for, in yeah. a way.
1: I mean, this is the mother of his children. Right. That she's killed these children, and I, she's lying, and lying to everyone.
0: I couldn't lying imagine to him. all those feelings wrapped so up in So he's that. got
1: all of that going on, plus this trial. And he said that for like a year, two years after the murders, he couldn't leave his house. Everywhere he went, there was a news camera. Shoved in his face. People trying to get interviews with him. That's disgusting. All in his house.
0: You gotta leave these people alone. And he's it. like,
1: there was no room to grieve. No. Because I was constantly on, like, guard. On, a, on a stage. Yeah. Then, of course, people were angry with Susan, so some of that anger shifts. You get blamed.
0: You must you, have known something. Blah, blah, blah. You should have stepped
1: in. Yeah.
0: And it sounds like he was an engaged father who would have happily taken custody, full custody of his boys. I'm gonna guess.
1: That's yeah, what he seemed really, like
0: to me back then.
1: Really sad. And so why didn't you just give him the kids? Well, that's what I don't understand either. Some psychiatrists have spoken out and said that Susan Smith's like narcissism made her see the kids as more of like an extension of herself than as individual human beings. Wow. So she didn't even look at her kids as like, these are two living creatures that are... Their own person and their own free will, and that she just saw them as like they're mine.
0: To deal with how I'd li- want
1: to. Yeah. And she says, of course, she's not a monster. She's come out in interviews later. Here we are, 20 something years later, saying that she's not a monster. Something went terribly wrong. She just felt suicidal. And she thought she couldn't kill herself and leave her boys behind. So yeah. she was going to kill all three of them. Right. You should start with yourself. she felt like it was the right thing to do. Yeah.
0: Right. You know, I just don't... You know, if she was... If every person who, who went through the kind of the traumas, and she went through a lot, I actually didn't know about a lot of that. Makes me... Does get my heart a little bit for her, more than I've ever felt. But a lot of other people go through those traumas, too. They do. In various ways, some worse, some not as bad. But I I want anybody out there to raise their hand if they had a perfect childhood that was just this movie, you know, fake Disney childhood that was perfect all their entire lives. I'm going to venture to guess not many people would have their hand up because we all had stuff we dealt with. And just turning on your own kids like that, I don't, that's the part I can't get. And that's the part that makes me hate her. yeah. Because I mean, everybody's had shit.
1: Well, again, there's to that deal whole with. theory that Susan thought getting the kids out of the way was going to free her up to be with Tom.
0: Right, and maybe in her mind, total speculation, she thought even just giving them off to the father, they're still there. He's still uh, like she wanted finality. She did. She wanted them gone completely, not at somebody's. She wanted house.
1: attention. Right. She wanted these kids gone. She wanted. This guy to come running to her, oh, I feel so sorry for you, scoop her up like the white knight.
0: That's why she couldn't contain herself when he did reach out, in more of a friendly way, it seemed, or just to support her. Couldn't help but talk about their relationship and her.
1: And again, she had come from somewhat of that upper-middle-class lifestyle. And she was
0: dying to get back this to This guy
1: it. had money, was single, kind of like the bachelor around town... And she wanted that more opulent lifestyle. So one could piece together that, yeah, she thought getting the kids out of the way, she could be with Tom. She could go back to having money, being, you know, with the kind of fancy.
0: Guy around town being known. Being
1: like, you know, the big fish in the little pond kind of thing. Right. Plus, she's just a flaming narcissist.
0: I wonder if she was made that way or if she was born that way. So it's psychopath or sociopath. What do you think? If I mean, you I had definitely think
1: it. a lot of her trauma could play out as being like this narcissist, but part of me thinks that she, she just was kind of this she's way. missing a
0: part in her brain. That's where I. Swear I, thought, I mean, they they claim that the there's diff- been
1: some speculation, and I'm not going to get into all the semantics of yes, she was a teenager, and regardless, her stepdad. She's not consenting, even if she is, because she's a kid, and there's all that. However, there were some people who were saying, she's claiming she's being molested by her stepdad, but her behavior is, she's like competing with her mother, as if she's a grown woman for his attention, Right. making it look like I'm a romantic interest competing with my own mother, the wife. Right. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Well, and
0: that, that could be some, some kind of. Some people
1: say a... she was into this. Other people are like, "Oh no, she's a victim." But there definitely were some sexual issues happening with her. Yeah. And I don't know if that came from her traumatic childhood.
0: Well, some could say that's. I don't know. Maybe her reacting to being male I mean, that that's such a you know. Chunky part gray area in that, but I I see what you're saying. But some would could say, well, it might be, you know, like sometimes you're either promiscuous or totally withdrawn and shy after traumas like that. So who who knows? But I think it's interesting that the cops or the jailers tend to have sex with her. If okay, well, you know, that's not the first woman in the woman's prison area that is like, hey. You can you know, whatever. You can get some of this. And I think it shows a level of manipulation for her to get them. To, you know what I mean?
1: I think we could also safely say that Susan Smith be horny. <laughs> she's horny for justice. <laughs>
0: Two live crew up in here. Okay. Yeah. Just dated well, you know, myself. I always no, said. But yeah, she she's, could be a master. But maybe she was. There was manipulation in play with the stepfather. I'm. I, that's really touchy right. to even say,
1: but it's just something that I didn't yeah. read and thought I would float out there. Just
0: but yeah, people know um, it uh, there's no telling, but it, like I said,
1: there's a lot of pudding out there, folks.
0: She went through a lot, <laughs> she did a lot, you know, heaped on trauma on top of trauma and not even getting a chance to deal with the other trauma. I mean, those are all big ones. I mean, it was that's bad, that's a big load, but at the same time, I don't see how you kill your fucking kids. I, I think that would make you hold them closer and keep them closer to you and protect them if I'd been through all that shit she'd been through. But maybe I'm, you know, so you got, maybe she's either born that way, a psychopath, or she was made that way, a sociopath.
1: Well, this is crude, but I always heard that no amount of dicks are ever going to fill that void of your father's love.
0: Well, and that is sadly true.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. This has been the case of Susan Smith. Yes it has. South Carolina.
0: And that was a big one. I remember it vividly. It was yeah, one of the too. true real life true crime things I remember from a child being quite younger. Yeah. Yeah. Mid-teenish.
1: I just remember watching her on TV and always thinking that she was like the quintessential early 90s poster child because she was always wearing some tacky-ass outfit that perfectly summed up the early 90s. Like, in my head, like I got Like, a right... big, curly, kind of perm yeah. hair with, like, a big old scrunchie... Yeah. ...ponytail. Okay, oh, okay. And, like, rolled-up jeans with, like, high-top Reeboks.
0: The basic shirt and on. And the
1: real big, like, boxy sort of shoulder-padded... Yes. Shirts.
0: Like, okay, here's the one that's sticking out in my head. She might actually wore this. I'm gonna I'm a research it. Like, a, what you're describing, like, a white with, like... Little vases and blue flowers, like real small print all over it. You know, like the whole thing. And the shoulder pads. Yes.
1: Or like the button-up shirt with like the sweater, cardigan sweater with the shoulder pads. Fuck yeah. That was so popular. Why did everybody have
0: shoulder pads? Why was everybody square-shouldered back then?
1: We needed to establish our dominance in boardrooms, Dylan. Even... Haven't you seen Working Girl (laughs) with Sigourney Weaver?
0: But I I didn't believe her. I'm going to say that, too. This is not me trying to be cool all these years later on a true crime podcast. I didn't believe her then.
1: I didn't believe her then. I
0: didn't believe her before she popped.
1: I didn't either. There
0: was nothing real coming out of it. I remember
1: like watching all that coverage with my mom. And I was and also
0: sketchy. We both
1: were like, that bitch is lying. You're right. And they, <laughs>
0: and they, they went so hard with that, Um, which is, a, you, we could actually do a whole other podcast about that that scary black man and... That whole carjacks, carjackings were so big then, you know, they talked about them all. That was the violent crime of the time. You know, they talked about all the time and they ran with that shit. And I was skeptical of the whole thing. So and it turns out I was right. So
1: and we know that you tune in just to hear our opinions because we are so important.
0: <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we got to a, a special person we got to mention before we get out of here. And um, so you want to tell them about our new patron and our
1: Patreon? Sharon Verdue, our brand new patron on Patreon. Thank you so much for signing up, supporting the podcast. If you want to join Patreon, it is very affordable. It is. For a couple of bucks a month, you can get extra content. And we're about to drop an episode on Patreon just for those folks. Kind of a... um,
0: Companion piece.
1: To this story. Yep about other mothers who've murdered their children.
0: Yes, and we do, from time to time, we like to do that, uh, what we call a companion piece with the the case of the week. And you can go right to Patreon, see the, the new fresh case, and go straight into us, run our mouths more, and a extra bonus content about the same subject.
1: We'll also have some video clips, interviews, some photographs, some different content available there to kind of go along with this case. Yes. Again, thank you guys for listening. Find us wherever you get podcasts, hit subscribe, give us a five-star review if you're feeling sassy.